It's Friday, February 25th, 2022. And from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is Pennsylvania Legacies. My name is Josh Rollerson. Tree cover is essential to the health of cities. Trees manage heat, control stormwater runoff, and reduce air pollution. But not all urban neighborhoods have equal access to these benefits. As we learned on an episode last summer, less tree cover in an urban neighborhood almost always correlates with lower incomes, worse health outcomes, and other disparities. The trend can be seen in most major cities, including Philadelphia. Many organizations in Philadelphia right now are working to increase and improve access to green space and its associated benefits for those who've been historically left out. Other groups are focused on food security and food sovereignty in historically underserved urban neighborhoods. Still other initiatives like the Philadelphia Orchard Project are doing both. The areas that had high numbers of vacant lots were also areas of the city experiencing food apartheid where they didn't have access to uh, grocery stores, fresh healthy produce. And so this vision was to turn the vacant lots into productive food growing spaces that could also provide jobs training. Greening vacant lots and feeding people with healthy, sustainable perennial crops on this episode of Pennsylvania Legacies. That's ahead right after this look at the week's environmental energy and outdoor recreation news from across the Commonwealth. New data from the federal government show Pennsylvania's electricity sector moving the wrong way on carbon pollution. Last week's report from the Environmental Protection Agency shows a 9.6% jump in CO2 emissions from the state's power plants. That's between 2020 and 2021, more than erasing a dip in emissions noted in the early months of the pandemic. Analysts blame multiple factors, including an uptick in overall economic activity, as well as higher natural gas prices that have created more favorable market conditions for coal-fired generation. EPA says power sector emissions were up across the U.S. in the last two years. That includes states participating in the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which Pennsylvania will join later this year. However, Pennsylvania's reversal last year outpaced both Reggie states and the national average. Pennsylvania is in line for more than $171 million in funding for electric vehicle infrastructure. It's part of a $5 billion package included in the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, aiming to install EV charging stations near interstate off-ramps and along U.S. highways, no more than 50 miles apart, over the next five years. A separate grant program to be rolled out later this year will target rural and underserved areas. Another $2.7 million in state funding, meanwhile, will support EV infrastructure and other clean transportation initiatives across the Commonwealth this year. Those are administered by the Department of Environmental Protection. DEP says the number of electric vehicles registered in Pennsylvania has more than doubled since 2019. But that insufficient charging opportunities remain an obstacle to more widespread adoption. Data from DEP show a pervasive pattern of conventional oil and gas developers abandoning wells without plugging them. Over the last six years, public records show the agency has issued more than 4,200 notices of violation to 256 companies for failing to properly decommission wells no longer in use. An analysis by PA Environment Daily concludes the practice is routine in the industry and not an isolated event, noting that DEP's data pertain only to documented sites, meaning the real number of unplugged abandoned wells is likely significantly higher. It's unknown exactly how many wells have been abandoned in Pennsylvania, but estimates run in the hundreds of thousands. A report from the Environmental Defense Fund last year found fewer than 9,000 are known to regulators, mainly in the western part of the state. 
Leaky and abandoned wells are a major source of greenhouse gas emissions, as well as soil, groundwater, and other forms of air pollution. Hunting, trapping, and sport shooting is a $1.8 billion industry in Pennsylvania, according to an economic impact study published this week by the nonprofit U.S. Sportsmen's Alliance. The research, funded by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, found hunters spent more than a billion dollars in the Commonwealth in 2020, supporting 13,600 jobs and contributing $99 million in state and local taxes. Nationally, hunting and shooting sports generate $65 billion in retail sales. Previous studies have estimated the total economic impact of outdoor recreation in Pennsylvania at more than $29 billion. Philadelphia has an estimated 40,000 vacant lots. While some may consider that a waste of space, others see an opportunity. Over the last 15 years, the Philadelphia Orchard Project has planted dozens of community orchards throughout the city. Today, you'll find them in vacant lots, community gardens, schoolyards, houses of worship, and other places where people gather. These sites can help provide families with fresh food, connect neighborhoods, and create green spaces for people to spend time in nature. With spring right around the corner, the Philadelphia Orchard Project is gearing up for their upcoming planting season. However, Executive Director Kim Jordan was able to take a little time away from preparations to speak about the project with PECS' Lily Jones. Here's their conversation. How did the Philadelphia Orchard Project get started? Um, and what was the inspiration and need for the organization when it began? Yeah, well, thanks for inviting me on the podcast. Um, Philadelphia Orchard Project was founded 15 years ago this year. We're actually turning 15 um, in 2007. And um, the motive for getting it started, it was really inspired by um, the, the founding. Um, the founding person was Paul Glover, who's been involved in a ton of different um, issues and organizations um, related to uh, really trying to make this economy work for more people. Um, so our alternative currency systems, um, but he's also really focused on environmental issues. So Paul Gulliver sort of wrote a founding manifesto, which he called the next great orchard. You can actually read it on the Philadelphia Orchard Project blog. And, um, you know, it was this realization that Philadelphia is a city that had experienced a lot of population loss um, with white flight and other issues as the city sort of turned from this industrial industrial space into, um, you know, transitioned away from that. We lost a lot of jobs. Um, people moved out of the city and a lot of neighborhoods, um, especially in former formerly industrial areas, went into disrepair. Um, there were a lot of vacant lots. There still are vacant lots, but we've been experiencing um, population growth and gentrification um, in various parts of the city. Um, but it was sort of, you know, looking at the areas that had high numbers of vacant lots were also areas of the city experiencing food apartheid where they didn't have access to uh, grocery stores, fresh, healthy produce. And so this vision was to turn the vacant lots into productive food growing spaces that could also provide jobs training um, to people that would maintain, the, maintain them and grow food and increase access to, to healthy food. So why did you decide to focus on planting fruit trees specifically? Are there um, specific social or environmental benefits as opposed to planting other crops? Yeah, um, well, there, there's a lot of other groups and individuals really um, all over the city that, that do 
grow annual crops. Um, you know, people really love their fresh tomatoes, um, peppers, corn, all sorts of things that are pretty easy to grow in the space of the growing season here. Um, and, um, you know, can provide a lot of food to their neighborhood. Um, and so for, for the Philadelphia Orchard Project, um, we decided to focus on perennial food crops. So fruit trees, nut trees, berry bushes, um, and then all of this um, other plants that can contribute to a healthy ecosystem. So pollinator gardens, um, you know, we do some rain garden plantings and sites that have issues with, with um, you know, stormwater runoff and stuff like that. Um, and by, by planting these perennial food sources, we're really trying to um, turn, uh, you know, establish urban ag across the city um, as a permanent way of increasing people's access to fresh food. Um, and beyond that, um, fruit and nut trees can be less labor intensive, um, especially after they're, they're well established. Um, you know, they require less day-to-day -day, um, maintenance than annual crops do. Um, and fruit trees and nut trees can also provide the same benefits that other shade trees do to improving the environment. Um, they can help uh, decrease the amount of stormwater runoff that's going into our, our city's combined sewer system. They can provide shade, um, cool the city and sequester carbon, just, just like other, other trees. And also fruits delicious. So, <laughs> so you're entering your upcoming planning season. Um, how do you identify sites for new orchards? So on our website, phillyorchards.org, there is um, a site, uh, uh, one of the pages looks at our orchard planting program page, which is really the, the flagship program of, of POP, um, planting and supporting community orchards. And you can see on the map um, where the different sites are located. And there's really like a concentration, you know, there's, they're, they're all over the city, but there's a concentration in sort of North, North Central Philadelphia, West and Southwest. Um, and these are areas that have, um, you know, less access to healthy food. Um, they have higher levels of poverty, um, but, um, pop, we, we don't go to a specific site or location. Um, we, uh, partners come to us, um, and we help them realize their vision of what they would like to see in that space. So we actually have, um, an application process for partners that they go through. Um, and so there's, there's several steps that we, we go through before we actually even think about putting a plant in the ground. Um, so part of it is, you know, well, um, we want to make sure that if we do plant with a new group, um, that, the planting has, has, you know, more than one person basically that's going to care for it. So if someone, you know, says, oh, I want to plant an orchard here and then they move um, and then their neighbors don't really want it, you know, it would be unfortunate to, to, you know, do a big planting and then, and then have, have the people have someone move. So, you know, we want to make sure that there is a really a desire from that neighborhood to go forward with it. Um, we do a site assessment. We look at, you know, what, what is the, you know, that might take several visits throughout um, in different seasons throughout the year to look at sort of what is the sunlight, what is the airflow, um, is there access to water, what's going to happen if it's a school, for instance, what's going to happen over the summer when there aren't people on the property as often. Um, and, you know, we, we have um, prospective partners go through, um, you know, get sort of neighborhood signatures um, so that we can get somewhat of a sense of, you know, is there, is there really a, a desire for this? Um, we ask them to attend um, 
some of our trainings or or volunteer workdays at another site so they can see sort of what goes into um, planting and caring for an orchard um, and start to learn some of the, the different ways that they need to take care of the, the various plants that are put in there. Um, and then we start with the sort of community engagement and design process. So again, we're not coming in here, we're not coming into a neighborhood and saying, oh, this site would be perfect for fig trees. So that's all we're gonna plant. Um, it's, it's talking to the partner, it's hearing um, what are they interested in planting? Um, you know, what can, you know, we help provide for them to be able to, to manifest that vision. Um, and then we would, you know, go forward with the planning process, um, design process, and eventually volunteer recruitment and um, coordination and plant materials. And um, we work with um, all groups on a sliding scale. So, um, you know, the, the orchards really vary in size. They could be half a dozen trees, they could be up to a hundred trees, um, but we don't want a group to be prevented from planting an orchard if that's what they want to do because they don't have the funds. Um, so for around two thirds of the, the community orchards that we've planted, POP has paid for some or all of the costs um, that go into it. Um, and that's what I just mentioned, the sort of like ongoing like uh, training, the plant materials themselves, volunteer recruitment and training, um, community engagement and design. Um, and we, you know, provide sort of, here's the invoice of what this would cost and groups pay what they're able to pay. Um, and so the fundraising that we do helps to cover the costs for all of that for, for our partners. Um, and so, so I guess the question, you know, how do we identify sites? Um, I would say it's more prioritizing. So if we do, for instance, we haven't yet been overwhelmed with getting, you know, 20 applications at a time. They sort of come in, um, you know, sporadically. <laughs> um, and so um, we haven't really had to make the decision yet of like saying no to someone. It might be, well, we can't do it this season, but we could start next season. Um, but um, there have been a couple instances where we said, well, the, the area where you, you wanna plant, um, you know, there's plenty of other access to um, grocery stores or, you know, farmer's markets or things like that. But this other area um, doesn't have that. So we might prioritize um, geographically based on like what, what are the, those factors looking like? So are your typical sites, like a neighborhood gets together and says, we have this vacant lot, we would love to put an orchard here, or is it, um, more common to have an organization of some sort come to you and say they want to partner, have an orchard? Um, yeah. So for the first many years, <laughs> uh, well, it sort of changed over time. Um, when, when POP was first founded, um, we didn't have this formal process. And there were some instances where we did just that. We sort of went to a vacant lot that a neighbor said, oh, it'd be great to have an orchard here. Um, but uh, those didn't really work out very well. Um, there wasn't sort of an established community that was, that was there that had this vision and they worked together. It just sort of, you know, oh, well, I, they didn't get watered and the trees died. Um, so, you know, since the pretty early days, it has been more working with organizations um, and there's a wide range of organizations. Um, again, on our website, there's a list of who our current partners are. Um, and so it includes um, a bunch of sites that are on city owned property, um, which might be a school, a transportation center, um, a, a, a park or recreation center, 
about about half almost half of our sites are on are on city owned property and so those are generally in partnership with the city and then there might be a nonprofit that is um, you know operating at a certain site like for instance at historic strawberry mansion other sites include um, Bartram's Garden, which I guess is also city-owned property, um, and Sankofa Farm. There's a number of houses of worship that um, that have orchards on them. You know, hospitals, historic houses. Yeah, it's it's a range um, of different sites, but for the most part, it is um, an organization. And one of the things that we've changed, um, I think we announced it last year, is we used to have a requirement that uh, a community partner either own or have long-term access to the land on which we're planting. And that the reason was because, you know, it can take a while for a fruit or nut tree to mature and start producing fruit. So it doesn't really make sense to plant a fruit tree if a lot might be developed in the next one to three years. Um, you know, basically we recognize that, that there are certain populations that have um, don't have as easy access to land or capital due to the history of this country <laughs> um, and the way that uh, people have been able to access um, bank loans, um, you know, permission to, to buy property and things like that. So we, we have shifted that um, and we now allow groups um, specifically with BIPOC leadership, uh, Black, Indigenous, or people of color leading those groups um, to plant on property that they don't own um, or have long-term leases for, because we recognize that we may be able to help their claims for um, staying on that on that land, especially if you know we we have a productive community orchard and it is clear that people are caring for that space. Um, so we haven't really um, been able to test that yet. For instance, there there have been you know the. The city has a land bank. It's supposed to have priority for community use of land. Um, and I don't know that there's any specific instance where having a community orchard on a piece of land that might otherwise be sold has resulted in it not being sold, but um, or not being sold to developers. But anyway, that was the idea of, of doing that. Um, so we haven't, again, we haven't seen a huge uptick in you know applications, um, but there's other ways that people can get um, fruit trees through the city, um, through tree Philly, for instance, um, and other ways that people have. So they might be, they might be making use of those, those vacant lots, um, just not through, just not through pop. So what do you have planned for the upcoming planting season? Are you starting new projects? Are you working on established ones? Yeah. So it's always a combination. Um, so right now we have a handful of sites that are in um, the planning process. Um, so I'm not actually sure which ones will end up planting this spring because it depends on how, you know, some of them are at the point of um, they have a design that's ready. They just want to do one more community meeting. Um, some of them are still like under assessment, um, but there's, so there's a number of, of sites um, that, um, will hopefully be planted within the next year. Um, so sorry, I can't narrow it down anymore, but, um, so that would include, um, Life Do Grow with Urban Creators, North Philly Peace Park, Fern Hill Food Forest, and Wild Seed School at FDR Park. Um, so in addition to planting 
new orchards. Um, so we usually will plant in the spring and the fall, um, and we do a mix of you know new plantings. Um, we used to do more than this, but we've slowed it down to two or three a year just because we can't keep continuing to expand. <laughs> um, because beyond the initial planting, we provide ongoing support to all of our partners. So there we have seasonal visits to all of the sites. Um, so beyond the, the, the new plantings, we also do expansion or replacement plantings if they're needed. Um, there might be you know, a tree that hasn't been productive or um, is diseased and we haven't been able to, to bring it back to health. So that might get removed and we replace it with something else. Um, and, you know, that depends on the season again, but we generally will do, I would say around a dozen expansion or replacement plantings each spring. Um, so we haven't put those on the calendar yet. Right now is sort of pruning season. Um, so we're in the midst of doing visits to a number of our 66 partner sites to help plant, uh, to help with pruning their, their trees, their berry brambles, um, their fruiting vines. And next month, we have our workshop series. So each March, we typically offer our ecological orchard care workshop series. Um, this will be online still, but there's been some hands-on workshops as well, especially for pruning um, during the winter. So, um, and then as well at our headquarters. So for the first 13 years or so that POP was around, we worked exclusively at our partner sites. Um, for the past couple of years, we've been developing our own site, the Pop Learning Orchard at the Woodlands, which is this historic cemetery in West Philadelphia. It's this amazing green space, um, 52 or 54 acres, I think, but we are leasing from them about an acre of land. Um, we've planted around um, 90 fruit and nut trees. We have berry gardens, um, herb gardens, shade gardens, pollinator gardens, all the gardens. Um, and we have our edible plant nursery out there. And we're going to be putting in um, two high tunnels and a greenhouse. Um, so that is still in progress. And then while the fruit trees are still maturing the past two years, um, we have been growing annual crops in between the rows of trees. Um, so this is a practice called alley cropping, which um, we haven't done so much at other sites, but it's something um, that we're pretty excited about. We've been able to grow a um, couple thousand pounds of food from that. Um, and again, we don't normally plant annual crops, but this was really in response to the pandemic and the recognition that um, a lot of people were in need of getting more fresh food. So it was sort of like, well, we have, we have the land, um, we have the people power and we have a way to get it to people. So it made sense to do that. So this, this may, this might be the last year where we do big annual crop production. Um, but um, that's still going to be happening this year. So. <laughs> so how do you distribute the food that you produce in the orchards to the neighborhoods? Um, and is there a way that you're able to measure the impact that your orchards have had over the last 15 years um, on access to food in the food deserts? Um, yeah. So um, again, just to, to reiterate that, uh, these are community orchards. So pop doesn't um, harvest from the, the various sites. Um, we support our partners in growing, growing that food. We um, provide um, training on how to care for the various plants that are there. Um, we provide reminders of like, hey, it's like 
time to harvest this, or maybe check if you're seeing this pest around because we've seen it at some other sites. Um, but each site is responsible for the harvest and distribution of the produce that's grown there. Um, and so uh, what we know, so we, we do a, a partner survey every year and we publish, um, publish a summary on our blog. So you can look that up for, for the past however many years. We haven't done it since we started, but we started doing that more recently for at least the past the five or six years, I think. Um, and so one of the questions we ask is how much did you grow and what did you do with it? Um, different questions, but um, so last year we, it was reported. So again, this is just for our partner sites, not for the pop learning orchard, um, but for the partner sites, um, the total harvest was around 6,000 pounds. Um, and the majority, almost half of it is di uh, distributed directly to the community for free, whether that's the community partner picking it and making it available, um, whether it's at an event or a program, or they're just handing it out or it's just them allowing community members to come through and harvest stuff. And we know it's probably an undercount. Well, we know it's an undercount because not every partner responds to the survey. <laughs> it was around 75% last year, I think. Um, and because so many of these spaces are open to the public, um, you know, people are probably just harvesting whenever they feel like it. And there's no real mechanism of reporting that back to us. Um, so some of the other ways that the food is distributed, a lot of um, sites, so around 30% last year uh, was distributed through on-site on farm stands. Um, and so these are generally like low cost farm stands that are, that, that may take, um, you know, SNAP benefits or other, um, other food benefits that, that people can use to, to purchase fresh locally grown produce. Um, other ways are, it might be donated to a local food cupboard it might be uh, processed into a value-added product. These are like lower, lower things. And then, you know, some partners also report some percentage they estimate is unharvested or lost to, you know, disease or squirrels. Squirrels are a big problem. Um, I mean, maybe that's one benefit of what Pop has done. We're really feeding the squirrels. Um, so for the crops that we've grown at the Learning Orchard, which is again, the only site that we are directly in charge of um, maintaining and harvesting. Um, we have a couple of like local businesses that we've partnered with that may, um, that have made um, ice cream or uh, kombucha or other value added things. But for the most part, um, what we've grown there so far has been donated um, to, to mutual aid efforts and to West Philadelphia community fridges. Um, so we have sort of a regular, you know, regular drop-off date, um, usually on Fridays, doing our, our weekly harvest and bringing that all to um, the spots that we, that we donate it to. Um, I, I don't know that we've ever tried to assess the impact of orchards, like, cumulatively over the past 15 years, um, but... That would be a very good thing to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it would be interesting to know. I'm sure 6,000 pounds a year goes a long way. Um, so you mentioned a little bit um, how you switched up your plantings during the pandemic to help people um, who might 
you need for extra food. Um, but how else have your programs been impacted by the pandemic? Um, and have there been any changes, either positive or negative, in how people engage with the orchards in the last couple of years? Yeah. So um, I would say there's definitely been some impacts from the pandemic, <laughs> um, for sure. You know, like sort of uh, the biggest one um, is at this point, it's really just on indefinite hiatus is our school orchard program. Um, so we still have a ton of resources available on our website. We have wonderful um, school lesson plans that were developed um, for grades K through 12. They're still on our website. You can still go look at, you know, how are different ways to use, whether it's the, um, being in the orchard space itself and doing sort of observation of the natural world, or it's um, doing a hands-on, um, you know, uh, processing of a fruit or, or some uh, herb or something that's grown there. Um, have a really wonderful set of school lesson plans. And we used to um, actually have uh, one staff member that would go into schools and help teachers with lesson plan delivery. Um, when schools were shut down, um, that was like put on hiatus and we had to shift pretty much everyone to providing more hands-on support to our partners, uh, because a lot of sites, um, site partners, you know, maybe they had a staff person that was more regularly helping maintain the orchard, um, but they had to shift to something else. Um, and so, um, so, so we're, we're. At this point, we're not going to be developing any more new lesson plans. It was also um, just besides the schools being shut down even before the pandemic, um, you know, it was hard for teachers to make time with all the other stuff that they have to do to be able to deliver those uh, lesson plans um, and have enough time for the, the students to be able to actually like make use of them. Um, uh, we had to, we, we pretty much stopped doing all of our harvesting events and community festivals in 2020. We were able to resume some of those last year. Um, so that includes, um, we, we have a campaign we like to call Juneberry Joy. Um, so the, the service berry, which is planted all over the city of Philadelphia, it's actually one of the trees um, the city itself plants, um, but not everyone knows that it makes edible fruit. So we'd like to have um, a bunch of um, Juneberry harvesting events. And that's one of, the, one of the partnerships that we've had with some local businesses is um, volunteers will go out, do a group harvest, you know, take some of the fruit home. And then some of it will be um, provided to one of those like local business partners to make a value-added product for them. Um, so we did get to resume some of that last year and we've done um, harvest events with Juneberries, Wineberries, um, mulberries, and then some other fruits, um, uh, crab apples, some others we've done in the past. We didn't do last year, just again, it was, it was hard to, um, coordinate these. And then some of the harvest festivals that we had to stop in 2020, we were able to start again last year. Um, so we generally do a strawberry festival in, um, early June at historic strawberry mansion. Again, great site for that. Um, people were able to, to pick around, I think it was 30 or 40 pounds of strawberries just on that day, um, last year. So that was really fun. Um, and then in the fall, we, um, have several like apple slash harvest festivals at different sites. Um, 
at Woodford Mansion. There's one at Sankofa Farm and Bartram's Garden, and then at Aubrey Arboretum. So these are all sites that have um, pop orchards and groups that really love holding these, these festivals. Um, so those were the things that changed the most, I would say. Um, and then, you know, we, uh, we piloted a new program in 2020. <laughs> um, you know, why not um, try something new? Um, so one of the, I mentioned we do an annual partner survey. And one of the things that's most requested from our partners is more hands-on support from POP staff. Um, if, if they could have a POP staff person visit every week or every month um, or every other week, they would all absolutely want that. Um, and we are still a pretty small organization, so we don't have the capacity to do that. So what we piloted um, in 2020, and it seemed to work all right, so we expanded it last year, um, is the Lead Orchard Volunteer Program. Um, so we have, you know, a lot of volunteer events throughout the year. Um, at different sites, whenever whenever the partners ask us, we'll put an event on our website. You know, come to a, an orchard workday at um, you know Grumblethorpe or wherever wherever we're asked to, um, if we can coordinate it. And we'll you know have people sign up to come and volunteer one time, or maybe they come a couple times. Um, the Lead Orchard Volunteer Program is is to support for those sites that really do need more hands-on help than we're able to provide is we're trying to tr uh, train a um, group of volunteers that can be there more consistently for the partners that have maybe a little bit more knowledge than an occasional volunteer, um, and then to build up volunteer teams at each site. And so um, the lead orchard volunteers are able to get um, a monthly stipend or a seasonal stipend, um, and it's opt-in based on if, you know, based on need. Um, so I think around half of the lead orchard volunteers last year um, opted into that. And um, again, the goal is really be there to support the partners, be in a sort of an additional level of support beyond POP staff, and to create stronger connections between volunteers and their, and their local orchards. Um, so ideally, we're trying to find people that live in the same neighborhood as the orchard is located. Um, and by going there more frequently, they're developing that relationship with the partner and with other people in their neighborhood, hopefully just, you know, spurring more, more frequent and more committed volunteers, you know, from feedback from that program and just from volunteering in general, um, maybe people that hadn't ever considered volunteering as a mental health um, benefit. I think there's, we've definitely heard a lot more of that um, in the past two years, just being able to be outside, to feel like they're giving back to their community um, to be able to, you know, taste food that they help to grow um, and to be able to connect with other people in, in a relatively safe environment. Um, definitely have heard a lot more of that. People have really, really said how, how important it's been to them to have that connection to nature. Um, and again, like without, with being able to, to be with their, their neighbors and be with a community, um, outdoors. Um, yeah, I think that's just been really like something that has been much more talked about in the last two years. Right now, the city of Philadelphia is finalizing two different citywide plans. There's both the first ever um, urban agriculture plan, and then also the sort of tree plan, um, 
which I think went through various names where it was the tree canopy or the urban forestry plan. And they decided that was too complicated. And it's really, it's about the tree canopy. It's about trees. Um, and so for both of these, um, you know, POP was involved in some of the, um, the planning sessions and the sort of steering committees. Um, and so I think, you know, not just in our city where, where these plans are going to be finalized and hopefully we'll, we'll contribute to making our cities greener and um, better places to live. Um, I think hopefully both will have, um, you know, some, some points about, you know, planting fruit and nut trees and, and thinking about trees as food sources, as well as providing shade, um, you know, filtering the air and all of that. Um, so I just, you know, I think that could be um, something to be brought into the context of other cities that might be considering urban ag plans or considering what steps they could take to change their um, carbon footprints is thinking about how can we grow more food lo locally? Um, how can we grow more food without using harmful pesticides and chemicals? Um, and these things will be touched on in various ways in both of the, those plants that are happening in Philadelphia, but um, hopefully are also happening like at other places throughout the state. I think even for this, for the state, the state has been looking more at like, how can we change our farming practices? Um, and I think not, not just on sort of like the big, you know, fields of monoculture, um, but also how can we support more, more growing and better growing practices in urban environments? Um, so yeah, I just, I just hope that, um, people won't forget about, won't forget about the humble fruit and nut trees. That's Kim Jordan, executive director of the Philadelphia Orchard Project, in conversation with PEC's Lily Jones. And that'll wrap up our episode for this installment of Pennsylvania Legacies. We post new ones every other week on the website peckpa.org. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, really anywhere podcasts are available. You should be able to find our show. Wherever you do, we always appreciate a rating and a review and your feedback. Get in touch via the website again, peckpa.org, or via social media. We're on Twitter and Facebook, occasionally Instagram as well. For the Pennsylvania Environmental Council and for Lily Jones, I'm Josh Rollerson, and thanks for listening. Music